this morning of about uh, five different crazy um, actual things that court reporters have written down uh, during trials, during hearings. Here's one where the attorney says, doctor, before you perform the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? No. Did you check for blood pressure? No. Did you check for breathing? No. So then is it possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy? No. How can you be so sure, doctor? Because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. I see, but could the patient have still been alive nevertheless? Yes, it's possible that he could have been alive and practicing law. (laughs) One lawyer said, now, sir, I'm sure you are an intelligent and honest man. And the witness said, thank you. If I weren't under oath, I'd return the compliment. Is I'm, there was literally a moment this week that I was like, man, I wish we had an attorney in the church. <laughs> so all these jokes about lawyers, you know, uh, it's, it's tongue in cheek. We love the lawyers. We need the lawyers. All right. Uh, doctor, how many of your autopsies have you performed on dead people? And the witness says, all of them. Uh, the live ones didn't put up much of a fight. Can you describe the individual, the attorney says. And the witness says, he was about medium height and had a beard. Was this a male or a female? Unless the circus was in town, I'm going with male. All right, so you may know I love a good law and order uh, show. I love the trial dramas. I love the courtroom dramas. My wife and I, man, we love to snuggle up on the couch and just watch some real good, you know, you can't handle the truth and all of that good stuff. But... We've got an incredible drama of of courtroom proportions happening here in John chapter uh, 5, where Jesus, having claimed authority, having claimed the... I love the couple first couple songs that Clay did because, um, first of all, I felt like I was 1991 again. You know, I was like in fifth grade, and I knew all the... He got thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fist, you know. So... But, uh, but they were about how the Lord reigns, you know, he reigns. And even in this time of just turbulent government stuff, that's all over the place. He reigns. We can rest in that. And in John chapter five, it's really good for even our church to know this, that he has authority, that Jesus is equal with God. He's been saying in power in authority and judgment in nature and uh, and he has laid his claims out we've studied it for about four weeks now and so having claimed to be god jesus is going to call a number of witnesses to the stand to substantiate his claims jesus's hearers clearly seem to need some corroborative testimony And the father is over all of these witnesses and and even is one of the witnesses. God, the father does indeed vindicate the son and provide the credentials that are needed that convey a direct message uh, to these minds that were unconvinced. And so we're going to begin with the witness of Jesus himself. In verse 31, Jesus says to the Jews, if I bear witness of myself, My witness is not true. Now, Carson says it's a mistake to think that Jesus is here discussing the conditions which his testimony may be 
admitted as legally valid. Of course, he's God, he's holy, he's true. So uh, we can, as followers of Jesus, just automatically throw the stamp on it as valid and true. But as F.F. Bruce said, a testimonial to oneself is no testimonial. No one can witness against his own signature. And so Jesus is going to bring some other witnesses to the stand that back up who he himself says that uh, he is. But he does say in Revelation 3.14, as we've recently gone through it, about midway through the uh, verse, that he is the faithful and true witness. And so we here in this room today can come to Jesus and know that the things that he claims to be and who he claims to be, all that he says he is, we can say he is faithful and true. Amen, Jesus, that's you. Uh, This is valid as testimony, yet to the skeptics, they didn't want to hear it. So he moves on to the next witness to the stand. You know those courtroom dramas where the first one up to the stand, it's like 30 seconds, you know, there was like, and we're done, you know, and and so you just move on the next one, okay? And so here's the next one, the witness of John the Baptist. Look at verse 32. There is another who bears witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. This is actually verse 32 where we see uh, the commentaries that I read that it's, it's the father that he's referencing here and kind of umbrella over the other witnesses that, that lead into John the Baptist here. Uh, so this one that bears witnesses, it's true. And then he moves on to John the Baptist, verse 33. He's going to come back to the Father in just a little bit. But this witness of John the Baptist is in verse 33. You have sent to John, and he is born witness of the truth. So John the Baptist, considered one of the Old Testament prophets, uh, Jesus tells us, uh, was received by the Jews, even by the Jewish leaders, to be a forerunner to the Messiah. And uh, we remember just from our text of John 1, as we've been going through the book of John, verse 15, that John bore witness of Jesus. He bore witness of him, and he cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. So John the Baptist is an interesting witness, okay? Uh, Because there was something amazing about him. The Jews received him gladly. They loved, it was clear he's a forerunner to the Messiah. He was pointing to a Messiah. They're so excited. To them it meant, you know, the restoration of Israel and uh, the Messiah coming, freedom from the Romans. Um, man, they were stoked. And so they would come down to the river and tell Jesus, or tell John the Baptist, started pointing to the one who was the Messiah. And he would say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. Jesus says, you Jews had received John gladly. You loved to hear from him until, uh, until you realized that he was pointing to me. We just finished the gospel of Mark in Polina and, uh, towards the, uh, end of Jesus's life during passion week, uh, after he dumped the tables over in the temple, the Jews came up to Jesus and said, uh, you know, by what authority do you do these things? They were really about authority and they were wondering who told you you could do this 
And Jesus says, okay, I'll answer your question if you answer my question, you know? And so they're like, okay, you know? And he says, the baptism of John, who was it from? Was it just from man or was it from heaven? And in the message of John, what was it from? And they knew Jesus had caught him because they had received John the Baptist. They knew he was a prophet. But then they had to think about, it was John the Baptist that pointed to Jesus and said, this is he. This is the one that I'm to be running before. I'm the forerunner of the Messiah. And that's when they took a step back. And then they began to waffle and fear man. And they never gave Jesus an answer. And so Jesus said, I'm not giving you an answer either. Uh, And so he uses John the Baptist as a witness to say, hey, this witness that you had once received, he pointed to me saying that I'm the Messiah. And, uh, and as you study the scripture, Messiah is God. Okay. Uh, and so moving on to verse 34, yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. So kind of just a little, you know, I don't need his testimony, but remember you received him at one point. So I'm using this example that maybe you would humble yourself and say, you know what? There was something special, something spiritual, something prophetic about that John the Baptist. And maybe we ought to reconsider who he was pointing to here. I say these things that you would be saved. This John the Baptist, verse 35, was a burning and shining lamp. This guy was a, just a bonfire. And to use 90s ver- vernacular, he was on fire. You guys remember those days? He's just on fire for Jesus. Have you used that one in a while? Is that said about you, I wonder? On fire for Jesus. John the Baptist, a burning, kindled, ignited, bright and shining, able to be seen lamp. Though he was not the light, he was a light bearer. He was a lamp or a lychnos in the Greek. As Carter says, a lamp provides something. It provides guidance. It provides direction. But the lamp isn't the destination. It's not the center of attention, unless you're reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or something. There was something about that lamp. We've got to find the lamp. The lamp was pointing to the... I don't know. Who really knows? I'm more into the movies, honestly. Okay, just kidding. Uh, It points to the wardrobe, right? Getting back to the other side. Uh, And so this lamp, John the Baptist, he, he wasn't the end. In fact, when they came and said, are you he that we've been waiting for? He says, I'm not him. I've come to testify of him. I've come to prepare the way and make his path straight. I've come to prepare the way and get out of the way. And I'm just about to get out of the way so that you can just have a full view of who Jesus is. I like what Alistair Begg says. The lamp depends on another source for the actual light. The more you burn, the more you burn out. Think of a kerosene lamp. The lamp depends on the oil within for, for that source of light. And the more it would burn, the more it would burn out. Bag brings the application that's a costly thing for us to burn for Jesus. So D.A. Carson says, as a lamp, John burned and gave light. 
or as the Greek suggests, he was ignited and he gave light. Suggesting that John's light was a derivative of a higher source. You know, as we are abiding in the light, as we are tapped into the Holy Spirit, as we are connected to the vine, we have that source of light. We are, we too, like John the Baptist, are able to shine like a light. We're not the light. We shine out the light of Jesus. And, uh, and man, I love, again, as Beg said, do you want to pray for this country? Pray for John the Baptist to be raised up in the pulpits of this land. So pray for me. Pray for other pastors and preachers that we would be John the Baptist. But you know what? I don't think it ends there at all. I want to pray for you, that you would be John the Baptist, that you would be lights, lamps connected to the kerosene source, that you could ignite and point people to Jesus. Jesus is the light itself. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Reminds me of the parable of the sower and the seed in Matthew 13, 20. There was a one who received seed on the stony places. And Jesus says that that is he who hears the word of God and immediately receives it with joy. But then that is scorched out by the heat of the sun. And the Jews were those that they'd received for just a little bit. There was the seed of the word from John the Baptist, but it landed on hard hearts. And was either plucked away by the birds of the air, scorched by the heat of the sun. Both the New Testament and Josephus record that the ministry of the John the Baptist had uh, generated considerable messianic excitement. You were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. And so John the Baptist, the witness, is done on his time on the stand And the next witness to take the place is the witness of the works of Christ themselves. Look at verse 36. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the father has given me to finish the very works that I do bear witness of me that the father has sent me. You may remember John chapter 3. We were in the amphitheater when we studied this passage about Nicodemus coming in the night. A Nick at night, remember, you know, or a, a man in the night. And as he came, he tells Jesus in John 3, 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. And he knew, man, there's no doubt that you are divine. There's no doubt there's, there's, you know, man, he's being convicted. There's divinity in Jesus because of the works that he does. And John 7, 31, a couple weeks will be there. Many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these, which this man has done? You know, it's like, hello, right here, you know, and they do, it's like a neon flashing line, like pointing to Jesus, like, you know, a fly hits it, you know, right here, all right, and even the, like, man, man, can you imagine what it's going to be like when the Messiah gets here, that's going to be crazy, it's like, 
right there. It's already crazy. There's an old saying that if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it must be a duck. And Jesus has all the signs from the scriptures uh, of being a duck. No, I'm just kidding. Um, really trying to work a beavers and duck joke in there, but <laughs> this doesn't seem like the time. Okay. Look at John chapter 10, verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe that the works that I do in my father's name, they bear witness to me. Chapter before that in John 9, 16 Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Back in John 10, 37, if I do not do the works of my father, don't believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. And so it's in that verse that you see that overarching umbrella that the Father is testifying of the Son, uh, even through the works. He's over the works. This, this all testifies that Jesus has the authority that he claims to have in this chapter. Acts chapter 2, verse 22, the day of Pentecost. Peter's preaching, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth A man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Uh, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, prophesy of the works that the Messiah will do. That the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, the Messiah would say, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. And so you can almost just make a list here, a checklist of what the Messiah's works will be. Preach good tidings to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance to our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified." We don't have time to get into it, but Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, tell the story of Jesus going into the synagogue in Nazareth, standing in front of the synagogue, opening up the scroll of that passage from Isaiah, reading it, and then as he is done reading, he rolls the scroll scroll or closes the book, walks back to his seat, all the eyes are on him, and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the one who proclaims these wonderful messages of freedom, and it brings freedom. He brings joy to the brokenhearted. He brings freedom to those who are in bondage. All the eyes looked on him as he said, today I'm showing you I am the one that Isaiah prophesied of. So the works themselves are testimonies of Jesus' authority and his equality with God the Father. He is God the Son. And we have the witness of the Father take the stand. Verse 37, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Hebrews chapter 1 starts out by saying, and you know what, I'm clipping the verse. If you go down just a little bit there, Heidi, there's another Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. Because uh, verse 1 says that God, 
who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past by the prophets, and that was great, Old Testament, all the prophets who spoke for the Lord, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through also he made the worlds. Okay, so uh, I love the literal translation of that. In these last days, he's spoken to us in son. Okay, Jesus is speaking for the father in, with authority of the father. Uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 tell us that the prophets uh, have, you know, in a sense, they all point to Jesus uh, being the one who, who speaks on behalf of God. Let me read what D.A. Carson says here. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the antecedent revelation. Failure to believe in Jesus is therefore compelling evidence that however exacting the scholarship was that studied that revelation, the revelation itself had not been absorbed, understood, or obeyed. We're going to get into that in just a second in John when he says, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have life, but these are they that testify of me. Carson goes on to say, this all introduces evidence that supports what Jesus is about to do. He's been defending himself, but now he's going to flip the tables or turn the tables. And he is going to indict the Jews in three ways. He's going to show how they are actually not walking in truth and that they are the ones that stand condemned. Three ways here, starting in verse 37 in which the deafness and blindness of the Jews from chapter 5 is evidence. And by the way, this isn't only for the Jews, but also for people in Prineville as well. Number one, it says at the end of verse 37, you have neither heard his voice in any time nor seen his form. So the first evidence that the Jews were deaf and blind and stand condemned is that they never heard God's voice. They never have heard God's voice, and yet they claim to be followers of Moses. In John 17, the high priest prayer of Jesus, he says that the disciples believe that the Father sent the Son. They heard the voice of the Father. They believe that Jesus speaks the word of God. But the Jews did not believe this, so they not heard God's voice in Jesus. Look at 1 John 5, 9. If we believe the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he's testified of his son. He who believes in the son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given his son. Okay? So, Hearing must be connected to believing to be walking in the truth. We talked about that deeply last week. Because they do not believe, the Jews in this chapter have shown that they've never actually heard the voice of God. The second thing that he says there from verse 37 is that they've also never seen his form. This is also evidence that they are lost. They've never seen his form. 
since Jesus is the very manifestation of God the Father, and the Jews do not see God in Jesus, it follows that they are not true Israelites. Verse 38 goes on in our text today, but you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, you do not believe. So the third evidence that they are deaf and blind is that they do not have the word of God dwelling in them. Both Joshua and the psalmist in 119 would write about how they hide God's word in their hearts, they meditate on it, they chew on it, that they might not sin against God. That they could understand the divine blessing in their lives was dependent on the indwelling of his word in them. Since Jesus is the very word of God, John 1, 1 tells us, and the Jews have no time for Jesus, it shows that they have not experienced the blessing that Joshua and the psalmist wrote about the word of God dwelling in them. Okay? So this all is conclusive evidence for the indictment as Jesus turns the table on them that they have spiritual failure against God and moral failure against God as well. As Alistair Begg says, the truth of Christ is self-authenticating in the life of the believer. And these three things show that there's no authentication that these Jews really believe in the God of Israel. Okay, moving right along to the next witness. You guys tracking along? So some theology here, some deep stuff. You guys were ready for it when you took six cups of coffee today coming in, you know? We have coffee right here for you guys. I don't know what you want. Do a dance. Okay. (laughs) The next witness is the witness of the scriptures. Man, this is a convicting verse. I remember uh, being at a Calvary Chapel Boise leadership conference, and Jason Beal, a good friend of mine, referencing this verse Uh, which could be a really convicting verse for Calvary chapels. We'll see why here. It says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Calvary chapels, they're just known to be churches that go through the word and search the scriptures line upon line, verse by verse, line upon line, Word by word, you know, and, uh, and yet, as we're going to see as we pull this verse apart, if we miss Jesus and yielding our lives to Jesus as we study the word, then we've missed the whole thing. We've missed life, okay? So let's look at this. Let's look at the context of what Jesus is speaking to, and let's draw application out for ourselves today. The Jews that Jesus is speaking to, remember, he's at the pool of Bethesda. He just healed a lame man that had been lame for 38 years. Uh, he'd done a miracle. He's, he's, uh, he's gone from the pool of Bethesda to around the temple Mount area. As the Jews approach him for breaking the Sabbath, when Jesus throws a gauntlet down and says, the reason that I'm working on the Sabbath is because I'm God and I never stop working. Okay. And so this leads into that Jesus is God. He has authority and all the different ways we've spoken of even today. And, uh, and then he brings down just this, this uh, convicting word to the Jews there that they had failed to grasp God's truth. And it was nowhere more evident than in their approach to the scriptures. 
And it wasn't that they were negligent of the scriptures. They read, even today, you go to Israel, you go to the Western Wall, you go to the Temple Mount, you could go under the Temple Mount area to the original stones of Solomon's temple, and you're there at the original stones, and there are Jews in there that are reading the Torah. And they are memorized since, since their youth. Children just, they blow us away with their scripture memory. You know, they know the Old Testament. They know the law. They know the prophets, but they don't know it. Know it, okay? Uh, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day were diligent students of the scripture. That wasn't where the exhortation was. They had definitely spent time in the scripture. The verb here is that they had diligently studied. That's a technical term there that showed that they just pulled apart the Bible or the Torah that had been brought to them. But Jesus points out here that their primary motivation for this diligent study was for the hope of final acceptance by God, just that they'd worked hard. I've been doing my homework, I've been doing my work, and maybe that's what will cause God to accept me. I can stand before the Lord saying, I've worked hard, I deserve to be in your presence. In fact, the rabbis would say, quote, the more study in the law, the more life. If a man has gained for himself Words of the law he has gained for himself in the world to come. So Jesus is saying to them, you will find life, but the life is found in me. The life isn't found in the words as an end to themselves. That just like the lamp and it's just like signposts. They're not the end of themselves. They point to someone else. And all of the scriptures were pointing to Jesus, as the Jews would uh, use keen scrutiny to track down the message of the scripture, they missed the point of the scripture because the end of it was found in Jesus. The scribes would even number the verses and put numbers on the letters to be able to get down to the nitty gritty, gritty and know what every, just know every letter. They wanted to know it. And yet they missed what every letter was pointing to. Jesus insists in this verse that there's nothing intrinsically life-giving about studying the scriptures if you miss the true content and purpose of the scriptures. These are the scriptures that testify of me, Jesus says. And as we learn to study the Bible... This is all part of learning how to study the Bible, you guys. It's called hermeneutics, okay? And it is the art and science of Bible study. And right here in this verse of John, we have what's called a comprehensive hermeneutical key. All right? If you want to know how to study the Bible, one of the first things you need to know is that all of the Bible is pointing to Jesus, okay? Whenever you get to a hero or a champion or someone who just saves the day, it's all a type of the one who's going to come and save the day for everybody, okay? He is the hero. He is the one that's, that, is, uh, that the whole of the word is pointing to. Let's look at just some verses that illustrate this. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. 
Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. I mean, the Jews loved Moses, okay? Hebrews tells us that they were borderlining on idolatry and how much they loved Moses. But Moses, in some of his, in, you know, just the, the, the words Moses said that the Jews clung to, said, there's someone coming after me who's a greater prophet than I am. And then if you look there in Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. So this, this word here in Deuteronomy, God is speaking to Moses essentially talking about the John chapter 5 passage we're reading today, that I'm putting my words in his mouth, and if they're not hearing him, they're not hearing me. Then we go to the New Testament in Luke chapter 24. After Jesus had come, lived a perfect sinless death, he died a sacrificial death for sin, for sinners. He's the substitute for me and you, taking our place on the cross to pay for our sins after he died on the cross. Praise God, he didn't stay nailed to that wooden tree, but he was buried, and praise God, he didn't stay buried in that Palestinian tomb, but he rose from the dead on the third day, just like he said he would. And then he played all sorts of awesome tricks on people for like 40 days, showing them that he was risen from the dead. One of them being in Luke 24, when, when a couple of disciples were walking outside of Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus, and they were totally bummed out they had a frown on their face they were talking about how jesus had been crucified and jesus just cruises up nonchalantly by them it's like what are you guys talking about you know and they're like what have you been living under a rock and you haven't heard what's gone on in jerusalem lately and he says why don't you tell me what happened i have no idea you know and so as they talk jesus uh jesus reveals uh, who he is in Luke 24, 27 says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So he reveals who he is to them. It's me, Jesus. Remember I said I was going to rise from the dead and they're like, oh yeah, that would have been good to remember, you know? And so as he shows that he's alive and he says, look guys, look all the way back here in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. Look all the way over. Look, 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 look all the way through Malachi. Look at what John the Baptist had to say. It all was pointing to me. Talk about an awesome day of Bible study. You're there with Jesus. He's risen from the dead and he's like, and this, 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 and this. By the way, did you know, and I don't have the exact number, but Peter Stoner, a mathematician from Westmont College, did the math on uh, the statistics of Jesus fulfilling all the Old Testament messianic prophecies. And it's something along the lines of if you were to take silver dollars, which we all have, and, and cover the state of Texas one feet deep with silver dollars and mark one of those silver dollars with an X, and then you skydive out of a plane and you land on that one with one X, that's the statistical probability of one man fulfilling the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled concerning the Messiah in the Old Testament. Okay, so that's kind of what we're talking about here. Jesus, you know, essentially filled Texas with silver dollars as he's uh, reading, to the, or reading to the disciples here in Luke chapter 24. Then later on, he goes to be with all of the disciples. And this is a really precious passage. Luke 24, 44. 
when he says to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And I love this passage. And I pray this over our church all the time. And I'm praying it over you guys right now as I read it. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Has the Lord ever done that for you? Just removed the veil and opened your understanding that you can comprehend the scriptures. And, and really what I mean by that is open up your eyes to see that as you're reading the Bible, it doesn't ultimately end with you like you and just be a good person and try really hard and just muster up a bunch of strength and, you know, join the boy scouts, you know, and whatever, you know, the young Republican committee or whatever, you know, like no love Jesus. Okay. Cause he is the hero of the entire Bible. Okay, should I connect to the network? No, okay. But then it goes on to say, verse 46, thus he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So Jesus, as he opens their mind that they could comprehend the scriptures, then he says, it was written and it was necessary That the hero of the Bible, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, that he should come, and what does it say? That he should suffer, and that he should rise from the dead on the third day. Why is that necessary? Verse 47, so that repentance, that's turning away from sin, and remission of sins, that's forgiveness of sins, should be preached in his names to all the nations, beginning locally. Okay? So the point of knowing the scriptures ultimately is so that we could turn from our sin and have forgiveness of our sins and then go tell the world how to know Jesus and have the same. Romans 10, 4 says that Jesus Christ is the end of the law, the end of the Old Testament, the end of the Torah for righteousness for everyone who believes. So when you read the Bible, You see that Jesus is the promised seed. He's the lion of Judah. He's the son of man. He's the suffering servant. He's the Passover lamb. He's the Messiah. That's just a a tiny little drop in the bucket of all the descriptions of who Jesus is uh, saturating the pages of the Old Testament. James Montgomery Boyce asks, what is the primary purpose of scripture? Is it to record the history of God's dealings with men? It does record such history, but that is not its primary function. Is it to reveal certain truths to men? Although it does reveal truths, this is not its primary function either. The primary purpose of scripture is to point men and women to Christ. And as Calvary chapels who value the word of God, value the teaching and preaching of the word of God, If we just get into all the little nuances of the Bible and what a Korah of dove droppings would weigh and what it would be like to eat that if you were there in Jerusalem, you know, it's like, oh, you just took up a half hour of my time talking about the weight of a donkey's head during a famine. I don't know what to do with that. Okay. The big picture is it's all about Jesus pursuing man, forgiving them of their sins as he laid down his life as a sacrifice that he might be glorified and exalted as the savior of the world. That's just it all in a nutshell, okay? To the Jews, when they read the Bible, 
It was merely ancient talks and moralistic lessons in a book of virtues. It was a driver's manual. You guys have all heard of the B-I-B-L-E, right? Basic instructions before leaving earth. That's often what the Bible is to us. Secret codes that you can decipher numerology, you know, the Omega code. Yeah, if you miss Jesus in all of it, you've just wasted a ton of your time and frankly, a ton of my time as well. We think of the Bible as just inspirational nuggets to impact each day. Maybe chicken soup for the soul. All right. If some of the Jews refuse to come to Jesus for life, that is evidence that they are not reading the scriptures as they were meant to be read. There's a Bible that we have for our kids uh, called the Jesus Storybook Bible. I've got a little picture of it so you can... Get it as a Christmas present for your kids. Start reading the Bible to your kids, guys. Okay. And while this is like a major paraphrase, uh, it's very helpful in beginning to turn our minds at how the Bible is about Jesus. Okay. Uh, Listen to the introduction to this that Sally Lloyd-Jones writes. She says, now some people think that the Bible is a book of rules telling what you should do and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who would come from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, and everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about the story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. As the subtitle of the book says, you can see it in a little purple swirly, every story whispers his name. As you read the scriptures, pray that the Lord would open your understanding to see every story whispers his name. Martin Luther preached on this passage in John just a few months before his death, in which Martin Luther says, Here, Christ would indicate the principal reason why the scripture was given by God. Men are to study and search in it and learn that he, he, Mary's son, is the one who's able to give eternal life to all who come to him and believe on him. Therefore, he who would correctly and profitably read scripture should see to it that he finds Christ in it. 
Then he finds eternal life without fail. On the other hand, if I do not so study and understand Moses and the prophets as to find that Christ came from heaven for the sake of my salvation, that he became a man and he suffered and died and buried and rose and ascended to heaven so that through him I enjoy reconciliation to God forgiveness of all my sins, grace, righteousness, and life eternal, then my reading of scripture is of no help whatsoever to my salvation. I may, of course, become a learned man by reading and studying scripture and may preach what I have acquired, yet all this would do me no good whatsoever. For if I do not know and do not find the Christ, neither do I find salvation and life eternal. In fact, I actually find bitter death. For our good God has decreed that no other name is given among men by which men must be saved, but the name of Jesus. As we have the worship team come back up, this is such an important scripture for us, church, because we love the Bible at Calvary Chapel, don't we? I've got this song that I've played on the guitar, it's a cute little picking, guitar picking song, you know, it's just beautiful. Some British guys sang it, and I used to sing it in a British, got myself some wisdom, you know, from a leatherback book, you know, and it's about the leatherback book, and just from my youth, I'm like, something about this, oh, I love a good calfskin Bible, don't you, you know? Man, I love cracking it open, I love reading it, but if we just come as religious people, looking how to make ourselves more moral, then we've missed the point and we stand condemned. And we are like the Jews of John chapter 5 who've never really heard his voice. We search the scripture here at Calvary Chapel for we think that in them we have life. And I remember Frank James one day saying, because I do find life in it. Amen, Frank. Because you know what Frank James, you know, one of the seniors in our body believes is that every story whispers his name. He believes that these are they that testify of Jesus. But those who just read it to just try to get, you know, just a little golden nugget for the day or something. And and it just ends in them pulling themselves up by their own bootstrap, relying on their own pedigree challenging themselves to go take the mountains in their life or conquer their own giants without realizing that it's Jesus who's conquered the giants and we get to realize our weakness before him and let him fight our battles for us and apply his victory to our lives through grace, then we've missed the point. And we are just as hypocritical and self-righteous as the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders in the book of John. Jesus goes on to say in John chapter 5, verse 40, we're just going to finish it up quickly. You were not willing to come to me that you may have life. You were not willing. You read it all, the whole thing. Somehow you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's all about Jesus, and you missed Jesus. Because you were not willing. Recently had a conversation with a man who's in bondage and he's in his own head and he's, he's just, he he can't walk in victory and he can't walk in joy. And I'll begin to point it to Jesus and I'll say, 
hey, let me, let me talk to you about the gospel. Let me talk to you about the hope of forgiveness of sins and then the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that you can have. And I, I can't get a word out. I know all that. It interrupted. And it just goes on about, you know, this and that. And I'm like, no, hold on. I'm just trying to like boil it down. To like if I could just get two words in, what would I tell you? Uh, um, hey, you need to trust in Jesus. That's how the other night's conversation ended. You need to trust in Jesus. Oh, but that's just so easy. It can't be that. Trust in Jesus. All of our Christian life is trusting in Jesus. All of this week and oh, and all this year, all of 2020, it's trusting Jesus. Hey, let's pay off the building during a coronavirus epidemic. And the next week, the coronavirus epidemic. We're never even going to be in the building again. That's all right. I trust in Jesus. And then like first Sunday back, like, you guys think we should still pay off the building? I think we should still go. Boom. Building paid off in one week. Like, you can't write this stuff. Okay? Struggling against sin. Call it what it is. It's sin. It's real. It's destructive. Confess your sin to the Lord. Confess your sin to Him and pray for godly sorrow that brings repentance. Even if you don't have that godly sorrow yet, you confess that you are a sinner. The wrath of God abides on sinners and I need godly sorrow that brings repentance in my life. Because the Son of Man, the Christ came so that He might suffer and that He might rise from the dead so that repentance could be preached to all men. That's you. So that forgiveness of sins could be preached to all men. You need forgiveness of sins? I do. It takes humility. It takes shutting your mouth and letting the preacher preach into your heart and say, you are wicked apart from Jesus. And you will go to hell. You must come to Jesus. Let him change you. Let him wash you in the innermost parts and cleanse you from your unrighteousness. Don't be like those that Jesus talks about that says, you wouldn't come to me. You wouldn't come to me. You had your own ways, you had your own ideas, and you went with that. And you don't have life. Come to Jesus today and have life. Jesus said to the Jews in 42, I know you, I know you, you don't have the love of God in you. I've come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another would come in his own name, you'd receive him. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you. Moses accuses you in whom you trust. For if you would have believed Moses, you would have believed in me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? How sad. How sad that there Jesus is talking to the very people that he called to represent him to the world. And they're rejecting him. They won't believe the things that point to Jesus. Let's not be that today. Let's repent of ways that we are that today. Will you put your things aside and just move to waiting on the Lord with me? Let's move to prayer together.